Thank you, Jeremy. So dear brother, appreciate Jeremy and Laura very much. Thank you for your service to our community too, brother. Really appreciate that. All right, so um, we are in our series on the people of God's kingdom. Uh, today I've titled the message, Defining the Kingdom. Again, we're in chapter 13 of Matthew, so if you want to find your place there, I'm going to ask you to stand here in just a minute. Uh, as Jesus is leading us through his ministry, it's beginning to grow. People are starting to follow, as you well know. And uh, I feel like I need to just reiterate some of those things each week for those of you who may not be a part of what's going on and haven't heard a lot of this. Uh, and case in point, if you've not been hearing some of this last week, those of you who have will remember that we learned about four different people from the parable that Jesus was teaching by the seaside. You remember he had left the house, he's now out on the seashore, and many people are gathering around him, and so he's teaching on what the kingdom of heaven is like, and that's what the balance of this whole chapter is really all about. Remember that first group of people that he mentioned was the confused hearers, and that was the people that weren't hearing and not understanding, but they weren't understanding because they didn't want to. These were the hard-hearted people who clearly understood what the message was, but they just didn't understand, really didn't want to listen to what they needed to do with that message. Then the second one was the fair weather hearer. This is the person who hears, and they also respond in a positive way, but when they're criticized, or especially when persecution comes along, which is always the challenge, they abandon the things of God. And then he led us into the anxious here. This is the person who also hears, comes with great excitement. There is a change to life, at least apparently on the outside. Many things are encouraging as they find this new life. But yet when the cares of life, especially the financial areas and just the day-to-day -day things that begin to burden the heart of the person, they also abandon the things of the Lord. And the rich young ruler was a great example of that person. And then, of course, the Lord leads us into who the true believer or follower is. And again, I want to reiterate this, and I'm going to say this later. If you remember last week, I said that we are intermixed with that, those three groups of people. In other words, all of us at some point in time have been a part of one of those groups more than likely. Nobody is born into this world a believer. Okay? Nobody comes into the world a Christian and a faithful follower of God. We're all born sinners and we need redemption. And so if your life has been one of these three, I just want to reiterate again to you that God is really good at taking what's broken and messed up and using it for his glory. You know, if you look around, you'll see a lot of broken vessels in here. There's a song that's out now and I can't call the name of it. My wife could tell you right away, but it's something about how it's through the broken pieces that the light shines, right? And so many of us have come to the place of knowing Christ as our Savior, and we realize that it's only because of His goodness, kind of like the song we just sang, that it's because of our brokenness that He's able to breathe into us His own breath and live through us. So again, let's just start out in a positive note this morning with understanding that if you have been one of these people, and you're seeing that in yourself, and you're hearing the message of what Jesus has been proclaiming these many months, it's not too late to come to him in full surrender. Okay? That's what God is all about. He longs for that. Now today, Jesus is going to share three more parables. 
And then he's going to explain one of them, which is the most challenging of the three. So stand with me, if you will, if you're able. If you're not, that's okay. It's a little lengthy today. Verses 24 through 43, okay? Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, do you not sow, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are, for while you are gathering up tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And then he left the crowds and went into, his, into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, amen. You may be seated. I don't think I really have to say this or start this this way this morning, but if you've lived any time at all on this planet, which... By the looks of what I'm seeing, that's at least a couple of you, myself included. You know, this is a pretty crazy place, right? Uh, it seems like it's getting worse, doesn't it? And indeed it is. I mean, there seems to be this growing disdain for righteousness. This growing unwillingness to live holy lives. And I'm talking about not just a rejection of it personally, but a counter to those that are doing their best to live a righteous life. And you see that. You can just follow the headlines. I don't have to tell you all about that. Um, we watch the situation in the Ukraine, and we wonder, how is it possible that one man can do such an atrocious thing to other innocent people? 
we watch or we hear of how a man can get upset in an audience and walk up on stage and slap another man because of what he said. Um, understand that there's goodness behind some of that in the sense, of course, I'm talking about Will Smith, Smith and the Oscars. Um, the good news about that is, is that it apparently he has apologized, if you've been reading some of that. And, and that's an important point as a little footnote here is that when uh, people do truly apologize and seemingly from the heart, because we don't know the heart, right? Only God knows the heart fully. But when people say they are sorry for something and it appears to be genuine, we as believers have the responsibility of accepting their apology. So just a little footnote there is that we need to be diligent in making sure that anybody is redeemable. Every soul can be fixed, right? Now, I don't know the soul of Will, uh, Will Smith or anybody else, but um, God does. And so, anyway, we just look at the world and we realize that it just seems like, at least in our day, that uh, evil is progressing more and more and more. And, and, and I don't want to sound like uh, a downer this morning. I don't want to cause some negativity in your mind. I'm just being realistic and, and living a life of reality just like you are. I mean, you pretty much have to be living on an island and with your head under a rock to not know of something and how the world is changing, at least in our generation. The good news is, and I really hope you hear this part, is that none of that surprises God. That God is not out of touch with what's going on. And it's not as though God is somewhere off in some distant planet wondering what's happening down here and has no communication lines. Sometimes we think that. We live the life that we live and we go through the anxious things that we go through and the struggles that we go through and even just the seeing of other people going through things. And we have this tendency to think, gosh, maybe God is not really paying attention. But that can be further from the truth. The reality is, and in this text, we're seeing that the Lord has had a plan. And he's making that plan known to the disciples and all those who are hearing. And you know that that statement means those people who are truly listening out of a right heart to what the Lord wants them to hear. The reality is, is that the kingdom of God has started small. That was God's plan. And it will grow larger. That's also God's plan. But he's done that one person at a time through people like you and me. And we are also in turn recipients of that. And that's what Jesus is saying in these parables. Now, I'm not going to reread verses 24 through 30, but you can follow along on the screen and uh, just listen. Let's talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares just for a minute. I just really want to give you the layout as you just read it. The context simply is a farmer who sowed good seed. That's what farmers do, right? I don't know of any farmer that purposefully goes out and sows bad seed. That was the question of the uh, workers. The man here being referred to, as Jesus says, is the landowner. If I were going to be politically correct, I'd say the person, right? But Jesus says the man. Uh, The good seed is that productive seed, the good stuff, the things that are useful for food. Obviously, his field is the property of the landowner, meaning that the farmer has a particular purpose and plan for what he's doing with his land. He wants to grow a crop that is useful, not just to him, but for people that are under his care, people that he's providing for. And that's very important to benefit from. But we're told here by Jesus in the parable that while his workers were evidently sleeping, that's what he tells us, 
I'm assuming at night, something dreadful happened. I'm sure there were no security cameras of the day and nothing that they could watch, you know, on their phones and whatnot. And what they do notice, though, is that an enemy, we're told, comes at night without notice, it's important, under the cover of darkness, apparently, and plants these tares. Now, you know, a tear is just nothing more than a weed. That's what he's saying here. Intermixed with the good seed. And so Jesus, being the master that he is at parable telling and just being God himself, gives this amazing illustration that would be very, very common for the people, and they could see that in their mind's eye. Now, the reason this is such a tragic situation is because these weeds, and the workers would know this, rob the good seeds of their nutrients. They take away from who, and we know it's who, but in this case, the plant, they take away from what the seed that is growing in a well-conditioned situation would need for its own growth, keeping them from being able to produce as they should. And that's a real tragedy. If you talk to any farmer who spent his or her life on the farm, and that's their main source of life, you just go over in the valley or wherever here, you know that it is a very serious situation for them because they know that those weeds can kill the crops, and that's going to take away from their livelihood, making the work that was done basically a waste of time. Just the other day when Debbie and I were gone, we were in the valley and, and I drive a diesel truck and I, we pulled up to this little country store, realized I need a little bit of fuel and, get, and diesel fuel was at five sixty nine a gallon. Now, you multiply that by what a farmer needs today in today's world and all the equipment that they have to run and not necessarily getting a lot back in return, that's a huge issue. That's a life-altering kind of a thing. And so in the minds of the people, they're going to understand this. Not that they had these big implements, but they would have understood the work that would have gone behind what they do, only to see it be a waste of time and having to redo everything. Now, according to Jesus, the workers didn't know any of this had happened. And very specifically, the Lord says, until they both, that is the tares and the wheat, begin to grow together and they begin to sprout. That's when they notice. So there's this process of them growing together. One produces the head of grain. That's the good one. One evidently does not, or at least some other kind of head that is noticeable to be a weed. Now, I understand a little bit about what this is like and the feeling of how this can be a, a problem is some years ago when we were still living in Rutgersville, I decided that I wanted to plant a little garden It was kind of a nostalgic kind of thing because that's what dad and mom used to do. And I thought, I love vegetables, so we'll plant a garden. And a friend of mine came over and tilled it up, took several hours, and we planted all kinds of stuff. I'll never forget when the little sprouts of corn started coming up. There was a crow (laughs) that decided he liked corn and went through and plucked every one of those things out and didn't do anything with it, just laid it on the side of the row all the way down the row. And I thought, you buzzard. (laughs) Actually, it was a crow. I should have said, you crow. But anyway, I understand the tragedy of some of these things. Now, for me, that didn't mean a lot, right? It was just no big deal. But for a farmer, you can understand the problem. Now, going on, Jesus says, basically, this crime that has been committed, and it is evident that it was a crime. The workers knew, as I said earlier, that the landowner wouldn't do such a thing. You know, in their minds, this was an inquisitive kind of thing. It was a kind of a, 
uh, it didn't make sense as to what was happening here. The new, they knew that the landowner would never, never do such a thing. Now, I've said that three times already because I really want you to hear that. As you also know and already know that this is going to be a reference to the Lord as we just read in the text, that our God never does something to harm his children. That's critically important, and I'm inserting another footnote there. So I want you to continually hear, and I think the Spirit of God wants you to continually hear that no matter what you're going through in this life and you're experiencing, don't listen to the lies of the enemy to think that God is not on your side. He is a master deceiver. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we go through all of this. So knowing this about the landowner, the faithful workers ask this question, shouldn't we go do something about it? That makes sense, right? They want to make sure that right is, or wrong is made right. But to their surprise, the landowner says, no, don't do this. Now, again, if you're the worker, you're probably thinking maybe he's confused about something or he knows something that we don't. And that's certainly the case because he makes that clear. He says, By doing that, you potentially could destroy what good seed is growing and even make the situation worse. In the parable, Jesus doesn't explain that, but again, I think the workers would have understood that. Mainly because by this point, the roots would have possibly and most likely intertwined with the good seed and become one in itself, kind of, to the point where if they did pluck out the bad it would also uproot the good. And again, that would make a lot of sense. So instead, the landowner says, let them both grow up together. And at the harvest, the reapers, and in those days, the reapers were a different group of people than the sowers. So the reapers who would recognize the distinction between the two would be able to carefully remove the bad ones from the good. And so he says, let that alone. Let them grow up together. And when the reapers come, they will take them away and burn them in a huge fire, and they will put the good plants or the wheat in the barn for safekeeping. Let's go on to the parable of the mustard seed, because that's where the Lord leaves it. So he presents another parable, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field also. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown... It's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. And in this case, the birds of the air come and make their nest in it. Now, at first, this parable doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because you might be asking yourself the question, how can a mustard seed compare to the kingdom of heaven? That just doesn't seem to fit any intellectual thinking at all. I mean, they're not even really close in any kind of comparison. Or are they? That becomes Jesus' point. Now, I've never held a mustard seed in my hand, but I understand, at least from the context of which we're told, it is the smallest of all the seeds. Now, hear this carefully in case you're a critic of Scripture, of all the seeds that would be growing in Palestine. Okay? It's not that, as critics have said of the Scriptures, that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. That's not a true statement just across the board, but it would be in the days of the disciples and the people listening, the smallest of of the known growing plants in Palestine. And they would have understood that. So the Lord says, uh, well, he would have known that anyway, right? Because he's the Lord, he created everything. And so he was not confused by his own statement in that. 
We have to remember that the context is what's important here. But what is also important is that in that culture, the mustard seed was a plant that would, or a seed that would produce a plant that was a very common kind of thing that was very useful. And so a lot of people had it. It was a very common thing. And in Palestine, and you can do this, you can do a Google search on mustard seed trees or mustard trees in, trees in Palestine, and you'll see what looks like just a regular tree out in the wilderness. And so there it is proof that they will grow tall. And so Jesus is really basically just using a figure of speech, which is why he uses the word like. It's not the same thing, meaning not that the kingdom of heaven is so small that a mustard seed is the closest thing on earth to define it. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But simply to say that as much as the mustard seed starts small and grows very large, so it will be with the kingdom of heaven. And that is exactly the way the kingdom started. If you go with me back in your minds to even Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll know that God created two people. Just two. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you think about that kind of thing much. You know, that might be too much of my intellectual mind sitting and pondering stuff. It's kind of like laying on your back in the middle of a country field at night and looking up at the stars and going, hmm, that's a lot. You know, you've been there? It's kind of the same thing here where we realize God really started this all with just two people. Well, see, the critical mind can't accept that, and so they come up with all kinds of things to make it make sense to the human mind. But the reality is God says, no, that's how I did it. I started with just two people, a man and a woman. And it's grown tremendously, and today you know that, right? The church is overwhelming in size specifically speaking, which is also why the word the Lord uses the illustration of many birds taking up their residence in the mustard tree. Now, some people have again said who look at this would say this is not a positive thing, that's a negative thing, that birds are like the evil workers and they've come to damage that which is done by God. But that's really not Jesus's point here. Birds settle in places that are comfortable, Right? They build nests where they feel like they're going to be safe. They're not dumb creatures. They know it's best not to build their nests out in the middle of the highway. I've never seen a bird do that. I've seen storks build giant nests on top of light poles in Romania. That's pretty common. But I've never seen a bird build their nest somewhere where it's going to be dangerous. And so again, the point would be obvious here to the hearers that the bird is settled there. They're confident. They're going to find their protection. And so you translate that into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is saying, my people find their protection, their safety, their security, their calmness, their togetherness, their whatever you want to put in a positive sense there as being a part of the church. Not by being a member per se, and I'm saying that because we're inviting you to become a member of the church. It's not about becoming a member. That's a logical conclusion to following what God says in the scripture. But he's talking about being a member of the body of Christ, of his own body. Being one with him, which is his whole point in all of this. And just to extend that whole picture of I guess, protection and blessing further. Even though the world doesn't believe the church, the world is blessed because of the church. Did you know that? Listen to this just for a moment as I 
make a couple of these points. Do you realize that it's because of the church, his people I'm talking about, that the world has everything it needs? You see, so often you and I, even as believers, start thinking that maybe we're here just on a devil's planet. Well, that's true in a sense because Jesus did say that the devil is the God of this world, but God originally created this world for who? For you and me, for his people. And God's not changed his plan with that. For example, every time it rains, who do you think that's for? You think God provides rain just so the unjust can have living? No. The unjust make their living off of what God blesses us with. The rain on the earth is for us. The warmth of the sunshine is for us. Again, last week when Debbie and I were off celebrating our anniversary, we were walking and it was cold as could be. But the sun was so warm. And we were just walking the dog and it was a back kind of gravel road. And and I said, you know, isn't it amazing how 93 million miles away We can feel the warmth of this thing, this ball of fire in the sky. Oh, God did that for us. And all of these things are true. The crops of the earth are there for you and me so that we have the provision to live this life. God did that for us. The building materials that grow in the wild and come and are cut down by construction workers and carpenters that come and build your house is for you. God did that for his people. Fuel, even though it's as expensive as it is, is for us. Food is for us. The world is the one who benefits from what God blesses us with. It's not the other way around. Every resource this world has been given is for us. Just this morning, Neil and Thea and I were praying together, and that's three of us were praying at 8.45 on Sunday mornings in the conference room 8.45 in the conference room is where Neil and Thea and I were praying in the conference room. (laughs) It's right across from my office, okay? Um, And we were talking about, they were talking about how they had just gone to see the uh, cherry blossoms up in D.C. The world takes notice of that. Oh, how beautiful. But what we fail to realize a lot of times is God is saying, look what I did for you. You're my children. This is for you. And the world it's the benefit. So don't think for a second that God is not remembering you in all that's happening in the blessings of this life. Again, too often you and I think we're the cursed ones and we're on this cursed planet and it's never going to be anything but what it is. And that is true in a lot of ways, but we really fail to realize everything that I've just said, that God did this for you. That's how much he loves you. If you don't believe me, go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. Let's go on to the parable of the leaven. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, this is very similar to what he just said in the parable of the mustard seed. And again, it's just something that the hearers would have understood. Because leaven was a very common commodity in every home in Palestine as much as it is even in our day. Many people have said, and rightly so, that leaven is a picture of sin, and that's certainly contextually accurate depending on what context you're looking at. 
God did say to Moses when it was time to get out of Egypt, get rid of all the leaven. You're not going to have time to let the bread rise. This is a picture of, of uh, being rapid and, and quickly getting yourself out of Egypt. And so there is all that part that we'll talk about in the Seder service even. But the reality is leaven is also good because it gives bread life. If you've ever eaten Diana's rolls, you know there's great life there, right? <laughs> and her cinnamon buns and all that stuff that I can't eat anymore. <laughs> but it's still enjoyable to eat, which is why uh, people don't like those little nasty little communion cups that we have. As you flip it over and you pull it apart and you say, I'll eat that little piece of bread which tastes like styrofoam. That's unleavened bread and it's just not good. Now, I understand that crackers are also unleavened, but uh, just the reality is that leaven is a good thing. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. His point is, as much as leaven is necessary, as a picture of sin, leaven is also necessary for the bread to rise. And it's also necessary to keep the bread batch going. This is where he's going with this. Notice every, of you, every one of you ladies and gentlemen, I should say that, who make bread for fun, know that you have to have a starter, right? That's leaven. That's a part of all of that. You got to do that to keep everything moving. And to do that, now watch how Jesus uses this illustration, you have to hide that leaven inside the bread, or in, at least in the flour, which keeps the process going. So Jesus uses this in the parable of three pecks. What's he talking about there? Why does he mention three pecks? That seems to be out of context. Or is it something only they would have understood? Well, yes and no. Three pecks would have been pretty equivalent to about the size a family would need for bread every day. It's about a bushel size. I mean, they loved bread. That was their main sustenance for living, which translating that thought would mean that three pecks seems to represent not just the household, but in Jesus's spiritual emphasis would represent the world at large. So he's transitioning from what was everyday knowledge into something spiritual here. And as he would say, just as a little leaven is placed in the bread for a family, a whole family to eat from, so are, and don't miss this, the people of God hidden in, tucked in, folded in to the world to be an influence in the world. Do you see Jesus' point? And when you and I are folded in to the world, we become, just like leaven is, to flower a positive influence in the rest of the world. Making this a parable like the mustard seed that starts very small, but grows large and provides comfort to everyone who surrenders their soul to Christ. That's what God is doing with his kingdom. Now, if you think about how you came to Christ, just for a minute, aren't you thankful that there was a person whom God had put his spirit in? There was a day in their life where they trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and the Spirit of God entered into that person, and because of their influence of the Spirit, they then became an influencer like leaven in the world, and you became the recipient of that conversation. And so the process continues. 
So what God started with two people, he has grown into a monstrous housing of people, population of people. Thinking with that same thought, aren't you so glad that somebody also said to you, hey, why don't you come with me to Laurel Hill Baptist Church? And you came, and you heard the gospel, and your life has been forever changed. Aren't you thankful that somebody cared enough to tell you about eternity? That, hey, this is not there, all that there is, contrary to what the lies are that Satan uh, spins out there and constantly tries to make us believe. This is not it. There is much more after this, and you can be a part of that. You can know for certain that there is an eternity of peace and joy and blessings that are waiting for you. I think about the underground church and this whole concept of the hiding within the world. You think about China right now. I don't even know what the numbers are. Some of you may know more than me, but China in the underground church is growing astronomically, all hidden, but yet in a massive population of people. Even similarly in North Korea and Indonesia and all across the world, people are being purposefully hidden, folded in, tucked in by God within those countries to get the gospel into the many hands or as many hearts as possible as God unfolds the work to be done. I was just having a conversation with one of our son's uh, friend at their wedding, and he was just sharing with me about a mission trip that they took Um, Not our son, but this man was talking about a mission trip that they took. And he said it was really interesting. One night we were uh, asked to come with this guy under cover of darkness. We didn't know where we were going. He says all we had was a little flashlight. And uh, he just kept beckoning us to follow him. And we walked down this road and, and he eventually led us into this little shack. And in this little shack was a group of people, men and women, sitting around with pieces of the Bible studying the Bible together, and they were so excited for these Americans to be there and to share that moment with them. And they were doing that under the cover of darkness because it was illegal to be doing that in the open. And so this goes on all over the world, how God has his people tucked into these places all for the purpose of growing his kingdom. And so you begin to understand much more clearly, beloved, when you listen to simple parables like this as to why God has you where you are. It's no accident by God. If you are a believer in Christ, God has tucked you in. He's hidden you. He's folded you into the world very strategically and very purposefully so that you are in the place that he wants you. It's no accident that you are in that house that you're in. You looked on Zillow and you said, oh, we can afford this. This is nice. It's got a nice kitchen. I like the bathroom. The yard's big and we can plant crops and whatever you do in your daily life. But all the while, God is saying, yes, I want to bless you with that stuff. But here's my real purpose for having you there. I'm hiding you in the world, not to be hidden, but to be useful as an influencer. The neighborhood, you just keep going. The school that you're in, it doesn't matter. God's plan, and it does work, right? Here we are, as what I was saying earlier. I was blown away just a few days ago, um, thinking back on 20 years ago when we first came here to be at Laurel Hill and how much all of this neighborhood has changed and, and, and so much has drastically and radically changed over the years. Um, 
And one of the things that was on my mind a lot was just how cool it was to be in an ACC town. That's a side note. Uh, but a liberal university, like University of Virginia. I know a lot of good godly people live there. Many of you all have been a part of all of that. But we had no idea 20 years ago that God would do so much in the University of Virginia. Now, Debbie and I are part of the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, as you heard the banquets coming up, and we're on the board there. I was just talking to George Morris, whom we support as a church. He's the chaplain for the area. told me that God is doing so much at the university right now. The night the boys' basketball team lost the ACC and were kicked, you know, moved out of the tournament because of the loss and couldn't get into the NCAA tournament, he said, he said, Bruce, do you think that the boys went back to the hotel room and they were just crying and pining away? He said, no. He says, all those boys were in a Bible study after the game, being led by the student athletes that were playing on the floor. You say, well, that may not be a big deal. Yeah, it is. That's huge. That's influencers like a George Morris and others who have been strategically and purposefully placed by God to make an influence in the life of people. But you see, the point is, we're, we're no different than that. Praise the Lord that we have George Morris's, but we also have each of you. And God has a purpose for you in putting you where he has put you. I mean, do you think that Tony Bennett... Our UVA basketball coach is there just to win championships. Everybody say yes, that's true. <laughs> and we're looking for more. <laughs> not Tim. Tim's not looking for more. Um, no, Tony is there because God has strategically placed him there. Do you think the new Coach Elliott of the men's football team is there just because UVA offered him a good contract? That's a lot of it. But he's a strong believer in the Lord. Do you think in God's mind he's not strategically put him in this place to be an influencer? So again, the story just goes on and on. I could give you all kinds of illustrations. This is what the church is. The church is a group of people who have been given by God to be influencers in their respective areas of life. And we do that in our own ways. You think about our shoebox ministry that uh, Deanna and so many of you are a part of. I was telling somebody else about the shoebox ministry from our church here, and they were literally blown away of the number of shoeboxes that this little church produces. And only heaven will tell, right, what God has recorded of the souls that receive something from this church. So I wanted you to see the video there. Here you are receiving a personal invitation or personal thanks from a ministry in Thailand and Laos. And that's not to mention the rest of the ministries. So don't let numbers and things like that fool you. Just understand that God is strategic in what he's doing in your life and my life. And we're all a part of that. In fact, and, and I know we got our meeting coming up, I just say this as we discuss the potential of a new church building, and that's all it is at this point. We really should be thinking, beloved, that, that any facility is nothing more than a tool. It's a tool to be used in our hands for God's glory and for his work. Not something for ourselves to grow ourselves or to become excited about who we are. It's all about what God wants and what he's doing. And that's what's really what's important. And we'll talk about that more later. Now, very quickly, I won't spend much time on this. We'll be done. From here now, Jesus leaves the beach. 
goes back into the house. They're at Capernaum. The disciples are following closely. And they evidently understand the parable of the leaven and the mustard seed because they don't ask him about it. At least Matthew doesn't record it for us. But they do have some questions about the wheat and the tear, tares. And so he tells them the meaning that we read earlier. That the parable is like the seed being sown in various types of soil so that prophecy would be fulfilled. And in fact, that did fulfill prophecy from Second Chronicles 29.30 when the prophet Asaph gave this utterance. He said, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was making very clear there in that very moment. And so Jesus says in verses 37 through 40, the field represents the entire world. And the good seed represents the Son of God himself and the sons of the kingdom. Interestingly, the Lord said that in the parable of the sower, if you remember that from last time, that the good seed was the word of God, but here it represents the people of God. And so there's this like synonymous kind of view here, meaning God scatters the word by his people. You and I are an integral part of the work of God. Yes, could God do it on his own? Of course he could. But God in his divine work and plan had decided that you and I would be a part of it. Meaning that everybody who's a part of him is also a worker for him. That's why Jesus could use the parable the way that he did. And it is our job to scatter the seed in the places that he gives to us to live in this life. Now the tares obviously represent the people who belong to Satan. Who are, as we well know, intermixed with all of us. God's people and they're there because all people, listen to this again, as I said in the beginning, come into this world as people of Satan. Did you know that? That the day that you were born as precious as you were to your parents or whomever it was that was caring for you in that time, you were a reprobate sinner. You were a weed in the kingdom of heaven that needed to be plucked up, remade, redone. And that's exactly, again, what the Spirit of God has done for many of you. And now we are the good seeds. Not meaning, and this is part of the parable, that it's our job to go out and pluck up the bad ones. We want to do that, don't we? Ugh. If I could just... Ugh. Man, we need to... You see, we feel all of that. But Jesus is saying, it's not your job. Well, what is my job? Well, he's told us many times over. Our job is to live the life that he's called us to live. He'll take care of the other part, which is why he says in verse 41, let me read it again. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. Can you just get a picture of that in your head? I can't do it very well, but I can try. And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Whose kingdom? His kingdom. You notice capital H there? His kingdom. Do you know who this world belongs to? God. He will remove out of his world those who commit lawlessness. Now lawlessness simply means sinfulness, those who reject the truth of who he is, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And some people have said that's a little hard. No. You have to understand that to be absent of righteousness is only one thing, is to be completely and fully encompassed by darkness. There is no middle ground. 
In the kingdom of heaven, there is full righteousness and there's nothing but unrighteousness. And so the unrighteous are like the weeds. They're thrown into the fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One commentator said, hell will have no friendships. It will have no fellowship. It will have no camaraderie. There will be no comfort. It will not even have the debauched pleasures in which the ungodly love to revel on the earth. There will be no pleasure in hell of any kind or degree, only torment day and night forever, Revelation 20.10. The weeping, two groups of people here. The weeping represent those people who end up in hell, realize what's happened, understand that they've made a huge mistake, and see that there is no return and all they can do is live a life of continual and unbelievable sorrow. Those who gnash their teeth are those people who didn't like God or care about God in the beginning anyway. They saw him as being a burden and a blight on their life. And so even in hell, they shake their fist at him. So two groups of people. And so you come to the conclusion of this and you realize that Satan has really done a masterful job, hadn't he? To cause people to believe such lies. To think that it's okay to live the kind of life that they live Lying about what hell's going to be like? Satan has done a great job of making hell look like a birthday party. There's going to be cake and you know, candy and balloons and favors and man, we're just going to live it up and it's going to be awesome. Or convincing people that it's just not real at all, which is a lot of the world, that we just end up in nothingness. Or if so, it's going to be bad, but not so bad. You know, it'll be okay. I've had tough things before. But the reality is, and I said this a couple weeks ago, it must be pretty bad because even the demons don't want to go there. And you know that's bad. Luke 8, 31. You remember that in the demons of the Gadara, the, man, the men in the, the Gadarenes? They were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. Imploring means earnestly pleading, begging the Lord Jesus, not to send them into the abyss. Now, again, I said this last week or two weeks ago. I can't imagine a demon begging the Lord not to send them to hell. Just has to tell me they know how bad it is. So don't tell me from a human being's perspective that hell's not going to be that bad. Go talk to the demon and they'll tell you the truth. And the encouragement from all this is Jesus says, finally, but for his people, it will be far different. The righteous will shine forth as the sun. Another Old Testament quote from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, when Daniel was given the message from God about the end of days and the times of the tribulation. Jesus picks up on that and he says, it will be a righteous life as bright as the sun itself in the kingdom of their father. So very simply, I think Jesus is presenting the question, which one are you? Are you a weed or are you wheat? Are you one who lives life for yourself and that's all that life consists of, even though you show love in your own way? Or are you wheat that is longing to be an influencer for him and for his kingdom? And Jesus makes no bones about it like he never does anyway, or like he always does. And being clear, 
he presents the question. And that's where we need to leave this. We'll leave it with where Jesus leaves it. What are you? Are you wheat? Are you a weed? Well, according to the Lord, this is his kingdom. And so he says, whichever one you are, there will be a consequence. For those that trust me, your life will be glorious. For those that don't, it will not be good. Tough question, but reality. Okay, let's pray. Father, it seems like uh, week after week, year after year, we, we are left with very challenging questions. Simple, but challenging. Simple in the sense that to ask the question of whether you're a weed or a tear after listening to such a message would seem ridiculous. Who would ever admit that they're a weed? But yet, Lord, you know the hearts of every individual. You know the mind. Father, you know the lies that we all listen to. You know how good Satan is at lying to us and how easily our sin gravitates towards his lies because they're so often dressed up in pretty packages. But yet you come in the midst of all of that and you open up to us the truth and often the truth that we don't want to hear. And so week after week, sermon after sermon, Bible verse after Bible verse, we are presented with the same kind of question. Who do you want to belong to? What kingdom do you want to be a part of? Where do you want to spend eternity? Lord, it's our prayer this morning that if there's anyone here today who doesn't understand the depths of what eternity will be, I pray that you would reveal that even this morning. Lord, it is you who opens the eyes and you are the one who opens the ears. And so our prayer this morning is that for any soul that is teetering on the line, or even for those that have rejected you and lived their life without you, Lord, help them to see even full well right now at this very moment, you will redeem their hearts. You will receive them and you will accept them. You don't ask them to clean themselves up. You don't ask them to fix things. You just ask them to come to you and you will do the work. So Lord, I pray that you would open that heart that is darkest right now. You would open that mind that is in the greatest of control under the hand of Satan and his lies and expose the truth. Help them simply to just say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. And Lord, you will redeem that soul and give them life beyond anything that they could ever imagine. Father, for those of us that do belong to you, and we know you as our Lord and Savior, we pray that you would help us to be like the leaven, that we would be like the mustard seed that grows into the tree that provides protection and becomes an influencer for the people around us that we're involved with, whether large or small. Lord, may we determine in our hearts and minds to be those people who will not stop in our prayers and not stop in our doings until we know we have exhausted our last breath in this life because eternity depends on it. Lord, help us as a church family not to ever come to the place where we lose sight of an eternal soul that's screaming in the flames of hell 
when we could have had a part in redeeming them. Not that we're the redeemer, but we have a part in helping them to see. So Lord, help us to do the work as you rescue the soul. So Lord, whatever it is you're doing in the hearts today, I pray that you would do it clearly, and that you would give a great determination to follow you, and that there would be no looking back, but just a continual marching forward, hand in hand, arm in arm with you and one another. So Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen. So like we started last week, um, some of our men will come forward. Jeff, you want to come and whomever, some of our uh, deacons and elders. These guys are here to pray with you. If you'd like to come forward and pray uh, right now, they'll take you in another room. It'll be private, and, um, and they'll help you to come to whatever conclusions that you need to come to, okay?
Father, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for the blessings that you give to us each and every day. The breath that you give us, that we can sing, that we can work, that we can share with each other. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us, for this world that you've given us, for us to enjoy while we're here, until one way, to, one day when we see you. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.